0: Hello, and welcome to Folklore Fever. My name is Trevor Pullman, and together we're going to journey through stories that shape folklore from various parts of the world. Let's dig in. James Jordan had come West to find a better opportunity for his family. James was originally from Virginia, specifically the portion that would become West Virginia during the U.S. Civil War. He had come to his new home on the banks of the Raccoon River in 1846. The land he chose was heavily forested, making it easy to procure materials to build his home and to create a new life for his family. James likely considered the land newly available, as the U.S. War Department had recently abandoned the nearby Fort Des Moines. The fort had been built in an attempt to control the nearby Native American tribe of the Sauk and the Meskwaki. These tribes had already been forced out of their homelands further east, near the Mississippi River and around the Great Lakes. The fort had been abandoned because the government had once again decided that the native peoples did not have a right to their home and forced them to relocate to an area at the time called the Indian Territory in modern day Oklahoma. This left much of the area uninhabited by either US military or the native peoples who had been exiled there. James used this recently available land to begin a new life further west in the lands that would become the state of Iowa in a few decades. However, when James first arrived with his wife and six children, there wasn't much of a place to live. The Jordans first lived in a small lean-to tent that the family lived in for two grueling years. After living in Iowa for a good portion of my life, I would not wish a single night out in an Iowa winter with a modern tent, let alone a lean-to tent holding eight people. This, coupled with the humid winters and the high insect population of the river confluence, would have made for two very difficult years for the family. James was able to replace his family's home with a log cabin sometime in 1848. An additional two years later, James and his wife began work on what would become known as the Jordan House, a two-story home with several large receiving rooms and a basement kitchen. This basement kitchen would prove important to the story of the Jordan House. James was a very staunch abolitionist, and was willing to do more than just speak on the evils of slavery. He opened his home up to people escaping slavery on their journey further north into Canada, where they could not be returned to slavery if anyone knew where they were going. James worked with the Underground Railroad, becoming known as the local chief conductor james also opened up jordan house to other abolitionists during their efforts including the famous john brown on two separate occasions this is to say that a large amount of history happened within the jordan house the reason is a local folklore point is not related to any of the major events that occurred within its walls however there are no sightings of escaped slaves running towards a shot at freedom no phantom john brown The events that would lead to Jordan House's reputation as being haunted would strike much closer to James himself. Many of the details of this story are hazy at best, but I will do my best to recreate a possible version of the story. When James's wife, Melinda, passed away, he had remarried a much younger woman. The couple had gone on to have an additional five children, bringing the total in the home to 11 children. One of these children, three-year-old Ida, is said to have slid down the banister leading from the second floor down to the first, as many children do. However, little Ida's grip slipped and she tumbled down the stairs. It was clear upon inspection by a doctor that the child's neck was broken, and she would likely not make it. In their best attempt to make Ida comfortable, the family moved her as best they could without injuring her further. Ida would die two days later from her injury. Today, the Jordan House seems to echo with the sound of a child laughing and playing. It's not clear if Ida chooses to stay in the home because it's what she knows and understands, or if she is bound there in some way. Several sightings of a small girl running and playing throughout the house have been recorded as well. Jordan House is by far the only historic home in Iowa that seems to have a spirit bound to it. The most famous of these, by far, is a small home sitting at 508 East 2nd Street in Vallisca known officially as the Josiah B and Sarah Moore house is much better known as the Vallisca axe murder house this small white home differs from the jordan house's spirit in one very important way the spirit inside seems to not be of the family killed there but rather the spirit of the killer or something else very malevolent on june 9th 1912 josiah and sarah moore along with their four children and two friends of their daughter were all brutally killed using the family's axe. Axes were extremely common and were essentially a household tool in a time where many homes were heated using a wood-burning stove or furnace. What made the murder unique is that a perpetrator was never caught. The only man to ever go on trial was acquitted for the murders. Other things that made the case stand out as very strange were the methods the killer had used. The victims all seemed to have been asleep when they were killed, with the exception of one of the visiting friends of the daughter. There were also several scrapes in the ceiling where the blade of the axe had struck as all but Josiah were killed using the blunt end of the axe head. After the killings had occurred, the killer seemed to have washed his hands in a nearby basin and had covered all the mirrors in the home. Some authors speculate that this may have been done so he could avoid seeing himself splattered with blood and making his deed very visible to himself. Also, curiously, a pound of bacon was also left out on the table. When the news of the tragedy broke, it became a headline across the United States. This story became famous as the story that finally moved the Titanic off the headlines of America. The home itself seems to have had a dark, festering presence inside. There are many reports of just an evil feeling in the home, but this is possibly due to the knowledge of what occurred there. Many different groups have done various levels of paranormal investigation at the home, and it is available for tours, both during the day and if you're brave enough overnight. On the eastern part of the state, near Burlington, is a small back road, just like the hundreds that crisscross the state with little to no pavement on them. These dirt or gravel roads are often used to reach fields with farming implements or to bypass a road with a tractor driving slowly down it. Many of these bucolic side roads are rarely used and of little note. Stony Hollow Road, however, is known for holding a tale. Like the story of Jordan House, there is little written record about this folk story, but it begins with a woman named Lucinda. Various versions of the story exist, but the common factors are that Lucinda was married, or soon to be married. Her husband, his name lost to time, told her that he would meet her at the ridge that runs very near to Stony Hollow Road. Lucinda waited all day for her husband to arrive. When the sun began to dip below the horizon, she began to panic and fear the worst. Had her fiancé decided that his other options seemed better than a life with her and run off with another woman? As the anxiety and restlessness began to consume her, Lucinda decided that a life without her beau was no life at all. She took a running jump off of the cliffside, falling to the road below. The fall was not large enough to kill her on impact, and she suffered an agony as a light began to approach. As the blood thundered in her ears, she was able to hear the hoofbeats of an approaching horse and wagon. Lucinda's fiancé, who had been delayed due to muddy road conditions stopping his wagon from moving, approached, only to find Lucinda's broken and bleeding body near the side of the road. She would die there after being found by the man that she felt life was not worth living without. Today... The site is avoided by most locals after nightfall. This isn't unusual, as many dirt roads are to be avoided at night, due to wildlife and lack of emergency service access in case of an accident. However, the cliff's edge is visited by some who claim that if you call out Lucinda's name three times, a spectral woman will appear at the top of the cliff. This is not without risk, however, as there is a price for this interaction. If Lucinda is seen to lay a rose at your feet, legend holds that you will meet your end by the end of the next day. Although Lucinda's tale is communicated mostly by word-of-mouth and local storytellers, some of the stories that paint the darkest corners of Iowa's history are well-documented and were even covered by Time Magazine. Emma Schmidt was born to German immigrants in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1882. In her teens, she began exhibiting some strange symptoms of an unknown disease. Doctors were confounded by these and Emma had no way to ease the symptoms. They include an inability to enter some buildings intrusive thoughts, and a revulsion for holy objects. This plagued Emma for 16 years before her local Catholic priests suggested that they attempt an exorcism. The diocese gave their permission for Father Theophilus Riesinger to perform an exorcism. Little was documented about this exorcism, but it seems that it was ultimately unsuccessful. By 1928... Emma was still suffering with her unknown malady. Father Riesinger was again permitted to perform an exorcism, but his friend, Father Joseph Steiger, suggested that the exorcism should happen somewhere else. Father Steiger suggested a convent that was near to him. This would allow Emma to be housed on consecrated ground, and they would have the assistance of the nuns of the convent in the exorcism. After Emma had been moved to the convent, the exorcism took place across three separate sessions, which were weeks apart from each other. During this time, Emma refused to eat, as the food caused her to fall into fits of rage, claiming that it had been sprinkled with holy water. This took an extensive physical toll on Emma, as she was also vomiting various debris, including what were reported to be tobacco leaves. She would scream in various languages that she did not know, and the actual exorcism sessions were apparently very violent, with Emma levitating and hanging from a doorframe. This was such a terrifying situation that many of the nuns asked to be relocated to different convents. When Riesinger began the final session of the exorcism, it was believed that Emma was possessed by Judas Iscariot, the disciple who betrayed Jesus, her aunt, Mina, and her father, Jacob. Jacob and Mina were said to be lovers who had cursed Emma for refusing their incestuous advances during her childhood. It is unknown if Emma's father had actually been involved with either Mina or his daughter in this way. Riesinger had commanded the spirits to exit Emma's body. This was met with a vicious scream of, Hell, hell, hell! After which Emma calmly said in her own voice, My Jesus, mercy. Praised be Jesus Christ. This exorcism was covered in many books from theologians only a few years after the events occurred. As Emma was still very much alive, the pseudonym Anna Eklund was used to tell her story to protect her privacy. Only one year after the most famous version of the story, written by a German theologian, was published, Time Magazine ran a profile of the exorcism in 1936. Our final stop in Iowa will be to a small cemetery that overlooks the Boone Valley. Viger's Cemetery is one of the oldest cemeteries in the state, and has burials dating back to before Iowa had gained statehood. However, The people coming to farm this land looked at the hill and simply thought that it had a nice view over the valley. They neglected to notice the five mounds of earth that sat atop the hill. These mounds had been created by pre-Columbian native peoples that had brought their dead to this hill and piled up earth around the body in a burial rite. With all of the horror film tropes about building on an ancient Native American burial ground, this cemetery goes one step further by burying the dead in an ancient Native American burial ground. This has led to the cemetery being noted as one of the most haunted in the state. It is not uncommon to hear reports of war cries, screaming, and ancient songs in the cemetery. Many people report a dark feeling of being watched. The hardest to determine the veracity of is several accounts of people reporting ghostly yips of coyotes surrounding them in the night at Vigors. Now, coyotes are native and quite common to the area, so it is difficult to say if these are ancient animal spirits or simply a hungry local pack as we have seen even in the most unassuming places in the world there are dark stories that can teach us how to act and treat those around us how we perceive the world can very much shape the places around us regardless of if they have very little information around them such as stony hollow road or they're very well documented such as emma schmidt's exorcism thank you for listening to folklore fever This episode was written and researched by me, Trevor Pullman. The opening theme is by me, you. You can find more of his excellent work at thedarkpiano.com. If you would like to contact the podcast, please send an email to folklorefever at gmail.com. See you soon.